Hello there, and welcome to today's Up and Coming, the podcast where we give today's up and coming undergraduate students and new entrepreneurs a platform to share their interests, passions, and journey. We are your hosts. My name is Gam- Garrett. My name is Emily. <laughs> I almost forgot my own name there. Today we are brought to you by Bear Studios, a student-owned and run consulting firm based in St. Louis that leverages undergraduate talent to empower businesses, startups, universities, and the like. They utilize their years of experience to provide their clients affordable and effective strategy, design, and technology services. Visit bearstudios.org to learn more. Without any further ado, let's introduce today's guest. Michael Yaffe is a senior at Babson University studying finance, econ, entrepreneurship, and design. He's one of the only people our age who I can accurately label a serial entrepreneur. Michael is the founder of Tile and the founder and CEO of Eris, which just completed the Y Combinator Accelerator program uh, this very summer. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to jump right on in, obviously, you've done a lot. Like, I don't think my intro really did you justice. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure thing. So I've been obsessed with uh, education from a pretty early age. Uh, but both my parents were refugees. And so I, it was sort of instilled in me that education was, was like kind of my only way out. Um, and, uh, the, the way that Tile got started initially was, uh, I started realizing, you know, I, I became obsessed with, with entrepreneurship as well, sort of a, a, alongside education. Um, and started realizing that, you know, in the high school that I went to, you know, my wealthier friends often had access to conversations with innovators, leaders, and entrepreneurs that me and my lower income friends didn't have access to. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I started realizing that the social capital gap played a much greater role in, in the role in, in the lives of my friends and, and the lives of, of you know, of, of my, in my, my own life as well um, than, than I initially anticipated. And so um, the goal with Tile was just to create a, a free live conversation where uh, students and entrepreneurs could gather for, you know, an hour every single month um, and have a conversation about, about, you know, careers, trajectories, stuff like that. And um, yeah, what happened is, is uh, you know, I just cold emailed about 100 business leaders in the Portland area trying to convince them to come and speak. Um, and, you know, thankfully about like 10 people responded and were like, sure, like, yeah, we'd love to chat. And, and, and you know, a local theater sort of donated their basement. And, uh, and, and so we, we, we were able to host the first series of events, about 10 talks for a budget of like 50 bucks and 18 cents, right? So it was like this super low cost model for, for delivering educational content and, and for hosting these like really cool live events. And um, what happened is I started realizing that uh, the model that we had developed was really scalable, right? Because no theater in the United States works on Mondays. So theater is always free on Monday evenings and we can always host free events. You know, students were willing to, to, to host and, and market these events. And, um, and then, you know, speakers were, were often willing to uh, volunteer their time. We found that like really, really incredible speakers, everybody from the CEO of UNICEF to like one of the co-founders of the Jordan brand, were willing to volunteer their time because they just cared so deeply about entrepreneurship education. Ended up, you know, creating a manual and started sending the manual, you know, uh, to, to people around the world about how to host these types of events. And we grew from one location in Portland to about 450 locations uh, in over 50 countries by the time I was 18. So yeah, yeah, Tile started growing super quickly. And then the way that Eris got started was uh, we very quickly started realizing that our most successful location was in the war zone in Yemen. And uh, I don't know if, if um, you know, I, I previously wasn't really familiar with, with the, the situation in Yemen. But what I, what I started realizing was that in Yemen, you know, because of the conflict, which to this point has, has killed about 20,000 people, Yemen's educational system has all but collapsed, right? So 
Uh, students were desperate for educational resources, and video-based courses were completely inaccessible because internet access was so limited. Only 27% of students in Yemen have access to the internet. I became obsessed with this question of how do we deliver more educational content in Yemen? Because, you know, we were getting 400 students to come to our live events because they were the only educational resources that people could, could have access to. I ended up realizing that over 90% of students in Yemen had access to text message um, and became obsessed with the idea of, of delivering educational content by a text message. And, you know, after working with my professors to create the first text message course, we ended up launching it to, to you know, a few hundred students, started realizing that, that along with being really accessible, text message courses were super effective and uh, sort of run, run from there. And so now Ares is, um, you know, the first text message learning platform. So we help organizations like the state of California, DuPont, GE, and at this point, over a thousand independent creators rapidly create and launch text message courses. Can you like sort of describe what that looks like as a text message? I'm trying to picture it in my mind and it's kind of hard to imagine. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, no, a text message courses sounds <laughs> super weird initially, uh, but, but essentially how it works is every single day, over the course of five to 30 days, you'll get an image or a GIF. So like that can be like an infographic, a chart, etc. Um, a brief 1200 character concept or case study explanation. Um, so that can be like a 1200 character explanation of the Bauhaus if you're taking an architectural history course, right? And that's about two screen lengths worth of content. And then, you know, that's followed up by a series of interactive multiple choice or open-ended questions. And what we find is that by distilling, you know, relatively complex subjects into just a series of like really, really concise uh, concept and case study explanations, you know, the retention rates like go way up and people actually end up finishing and enjoying their courses instead of like sitting down and watching a video for two hours. Mm-hmm. And this plays with the concept that's pretty new with the rise of everything becoming digital and more people having access to whether it be a phone for text messages or a laptop with internet access, this concept of like nano learning or micro learning. Do you mind explaining for those of us who really don't know what it is, what exactly those concepts are, what they mean, and what their place may be in the future, both within your company, Arist, and even for the rest of the world? Yeah, sure. So, so I think it makes sense to step back just a little bit. And, um, you know, what, what was really surprising to me before I started, Ares, uh, I mean, right after I started Eris was like how big of a role corporate learning plays in, in the way that most people learn, right? So if you think about it, like, you know, most people, most people will learn with, you know, in high school, some people will learn in college, right? And about 30% of Americans go to university. Um, but for the vast majority of Americans and for the vast majority of the planet, the place where they end up learning the most is at their job. Right. So companies in many ways are, are really the university of the future and are, are in many ways the university of today. Um, unfortunately, a lot of companies don't really take that role seriously. You know, what, what, what we find interesting is most of the way most of how people are, are taught currently or trained at currently at companies um, is either, you know, with somebody like coaching you one on one. Right. Like if you're a welder, you know, becoming an apprentice, another welder. Or if you're in the workplace, it ends up being like you watching a series of hour or two hour long videos that are super boring, right? You know, m- m- most people have gone through sexual harassment training. And, uh, you know, despite the subject being incredibly important, few people would say that sexual harassment training, the, 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 the harassment training that they went through was incredibly enjoyable. Or even, you know, if you ask somebody what they remembered from it, they would say relatively little. And so essentially, uh, micro learning is the idea of utilizing a, a lot of cutting edge learning research to, to condense, you know, literally complex course content into a series of like, you know, five to 10 minute bites, 
right? And so instead of throwing like a two or three hour long video at you and trying to get you to learn that way, um, essentially breaking up learning into a series of, of more manageable, uh, you know, content, uh, co- 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 yeah, a series of more manageable lessons, if you will. At Eris, we've, we've taken that to its extreme, right? So uh, what we're doing is is more akin to nano learning, uh, which is which is a term that that we we've actually started to, to to use more and more often, and and you know have, have started to speak on a bit more. But nano learning is essentially the idea of, of seamlessly embedding knowledge into your day to day life, right? So most of us practice nano learning on a regular basis. Like if you ever read a Twitter thread or watch a TikTok that's like highly educational. Right, that 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 that's nano learning taking place. Right, you're you're just like picking up knowledge as you go throughout the day, um, and and unfortunately that like that doesn't currently happen in in, in uh, you know the corporate space, and it's not tracked either. Um, and so with Eris, we're obsessed with the idea of bringing nano learning to, to, to corporations, right? Um, making sure that we can seamlessly embed those like tiny little learning moments and track them uh, on a regular basis. That's it. so. What place as we as we move forward, you know, ideally. If, if we're being optimistic here about the world, people will hopefully at one point all have access to the internet in some sustainable fashion. You know, is texting going to be the best way to deliver this type of content? Will it be things like TikTok? We actually have a professor at WashU, Michael McLaughlin, who's doing little one minute long sessions on accounting through TikTok and he's disseminating those to his classes. Awesome. So, I mean, is that the, I mean, maybe not TikTok specifically is the future, but how will nano learning for you, for Eris evolve as the world gets more and more connected? If you've thought, you know, that far down the road. Yeah, without a doubt. No. So, so, so yeah, one of the questions that we get a lot is like, you know, well, well, you know, and internet access will eventually be ubiquitous. And, you know, at that point, people won't really want to learn with text messages. What we find is is that actually, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what level of internet access somebody has, uh, but that people generally prefer learning over text messages uh, than learning over video courses, etc. Um, we ran a really interesting pilot with Harvard Business Publishing, which is one of the uh, world's largest executive trainers, right? And so they, they have this audience of like, you know, executives at Pepsi, uh, HP, like all these huge companies. Um, and what, you know, what we found is that these executives far preferred learning, uh, over text messages because, you know, it was, it was super frictionless. Um, learning content would be delivered directly to your phone, right? You wouldn't have to like log on to a learning platform or like download an app. It, it met the learning was built around their life and met them where they were. And I think that that's sort of the, the more important aspect of, of, of nano learning, right? Is that it doesn't really matter what the medium is, right? Whether it's Twitter or TikTok or text message. What, what really matters is that the learning is built around you, right? And, and, and it's built around like your time constraints, how you prefer to learn. Um, and also like, you know, like what, what, what's, what's easiest to access on your end. I'd love to know like how you're able to scale Tile and Aris like so quickly, so successfully, because it seems like a lot of people, like a lot of people can have good ideas, right? But it takes, a certain type of skill to be able to execute it and then deliver it to a mass population. So what do you think was it about you or your team that like made this happen? Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, uh, scale is everything, right? I mean, I think I, I, I've been like obsessed with the concept of scale for a really long time. Um, and I think one thing that a lot of people don't, don't realize about scale is, is I mean, really, really two primary things. One is that to reach scale, you have to do things that don't scale. 
Um, so, so in the early days of Eris, we would often, you know, create courses for, for our clients. You know, Eris is a course creation delivery tool. So the concept of us creating courses for clients, like, didn't make a whole lot of sense. But we, we realized that we just really needed to prove the medium, right? So we, we would do tons and tons of things that didn't scale. From making courses for, uh, you know, for clients to, like, at one point we printed out, I think, like, 100 posters and put them all over Harvard's campus trying to get professors to, to like, teach a course on Eris, Right. So we, 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 we'd sort of try everything in the book uh, to, to, see, to see what resonates. Um, I, I think also, you know, what, what, what I found is that, you know, scale is best achieved when, when there is a genuine immediate need. Um, and what we started realizing with Eris is that, you, you, you know, most corporations simply don't have a way to train their frontline employees. Right. So if, if, if you're an employee at Dunkin Donuts, the only way that, that you're able to be trained is in person. And with COVID-19, in-person training is no, no longer a reality. And, and, and so companies started scrambling for ways uh, or, or tr- trying to figure out ways to rapidly train their frontline employees. And then that's where Eris comes in, right? Because these employees oftentimes don't have laptops, don't have company-issued phones. Um, they really just have their personal device and that's it. So, so, so for us, you know, we, we also started realizing that, that, you know, to achieve scale, you really have to pare back what you're doing, right? So, so. We could have taken the Eris platform in a number of you know in a number of different ways, um, but for us, we were just really intentional about keeping the product super super simple and making both the course creation and course delivery process like as simple and as scalable as possible. With Tile, what we found is that and, and again with scale, typically like one or two marketing strategies uh, will like take you where you want to go. For Tile, that was uh, us posting on Quora and having Tile shop leaders post on Quora about their experience. We like randomly stumbled upon the fact that Quora, which is like this question and answer social network, had really, really great uh, search engine optimization and had like this huge community of people who cared a lot about business but didn't know where to start. And, and so like that, that was how we were able to scale up there. Uh, with Eris, we found that Twitter was sort of the best ad medium we could use. And we just started sharing like Eris case studies and stories on Twitter. And that's how we scaled up there. So, so really like experimenting with a lot of different marketing tactics um, until you find the one that works is sort of the way to go. And I'm sure along the way with all the businesses that you, you've worked with over these past couple of years, I'm sure there's recurring challenges that you face or barriers that you face that are similar through all of them. What, what might those be and kind of what's your technique for surpassing those barriers? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think um, and this is something that, that White Commander talks about a lot, right, is, is um, the idea of, of like product market fit. And that's just that's just the idea that like you know you, you can have a product idea, but until you find the people who genuinely want it and who who are willing to like you know just take it off your hands as quickly as possible, you know you know like it, things aren't really going to go anywhere. I remember at the at the very early stages of Eris, um, you know we started charging like I think nine thousand dollars for access to the product, um, and we uh, we were like oh this is like far too high, and so we just kept it discounting and discounting and discounting. And, uh, you know, to, unfortunately, you know, the, if you discount more, it doesn't all of a sudden make your product more accessible to people. And what we found is that keeping a high price point actually mattered a lot, mainly because if you have a really high price point, the people that genuinely need your product are going to be the ones that, that eventually are willing to pay, right? So, so I, th- I think for, for us, it, it, like, and with both Eris and Tile, right, really finding like, where is that initial community of people who really, really want what you're creating? Um, right with 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 Tile, it was like you know people who were interested in business and, and who wanted to get into college but had no like no way to start a business because of their circumstances. And so Tile gave them a platform to to create something of their own, 
right? But but in a very low low cost and low risk fashion. Um, you know, with Eris, it, it was you know like frontline uh, training directors who were like desperately trying to find a way to to, to reach reach their audiences. Um, and and you you never know like you're never gonna know what that audience is until you just like try to hit as many different audiences as possible. One really good tactic that that I would recommend is spending you know anywhere from five hundred to like two or three thousand dollars on on ads across different platforms and targeting really really, really niche communities uh, just to see what resonates the most. And then just to clarify, um, with Aris, you guys went through this year's Y Combinator season, right? Yep, yep. We just just graduated from YC uh, a few Can weeks ago. Can you like talk about what that process was like? Because like obviously it's a very reputable accelerator to go through, um, and then also maybe like how things were different because of COVID nineteen. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so yeah, so we we applied to Y Combinator uh, in March, right before COVID nineteen hit, um, and after COVID nineteen hit, we um, you know essentially like I thought that Airs was going to die as a business, like. On March 31st, right? Because all of our corporate clients had their budgets completely slashed. And so we, we just like, there was a solid month where we didn't hear from any of our clients that had no revenue whatsoever. Um, and it was, it was like, like the month of April was just like brutal. And, and, and so we, we really were not optimistic about whether or not we were going to get into YC. You know, we, we had applied once before and had gotten rejected before as well. Um, and, and so we just spent, you know, the, the month of April sort of repositioning the business completely and just trying to, to, to scramble um, un, until our YC interview took place, which was on May 1st. Um, and so how it works is, is um, you know, with YC, you apply, um, you know, a certain percentage of companies move on to the interview stage. And then at the interview stage, you essentially go through like a 10 minute super intense interview, like the most intense interview I've, I've ever gone through. And, uh, and, and, you know, thankfully we, um, you know, we had one client sign on, like GE signed on, uh, as, as a customer, I think like a week before our YC interview took place. And it wasn't, it was like a tiny, tiny contract, but for, for, for YC, that was enough proof that we had something and that was enough proof to, to sort of get us in the door. And so YC was, yeah, it was fully remote. Um, essentially it was a series of like, um, like lectures, more or less like interactive lectures. Um, that, that you went to like on a Tuesday morning and on a Thursday morning, and then a series of like one-on-one office hours with, with, um, like one of their venture partners. And, um, yeah, and it was, it was, it was great. It was super helpful. I think for, for us, the main value of YC was like for stuff in fundraising, like they really, really help with, with raising your seed round, but also just in the fact that like you're given these three months to like really, really focus and try to grow as much as possible. And Eris grew, I mean, our, our revenues grew, I think 30 fold within YC. Uh, just within like those three months. Um, and, and I think that's largely a function of the fact that they just force you to like sit down and focus and like do as much as you can. I've always been curious to learn like YC as an entity has so much sway whenever you, you say the word. And I think it's partially because of the network and the companies that have come out of it. Um, but you know, I always think, well, there's, there's so many other accelerators that are out there. St. Louis has plenty of them. Every major city that calls themselves like an entrepreneurship hub has plenty. But what ultimately, you know, as an, what makes YC the gold standard? Why are they just held above the others or toted as being the best? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I, um, honestly, I, I, I don't fully know because, you know, I, I haven't participated in, in many other startup accelerators, but, but what I can say is this, um, what YC does exceptionally well and, and what, what I think YC does much, much better than, than some of the other accelerators that I've experienced is, 
the clarity of thought within y, uh, within within YC, right? Because the biggest problem that most startups have, um, especially you know, at any startup with traction, is that you can go in any number of like you know, you can go in any number of directions, right? Um, and, and there's there's always you know, like in terms of next steps, there's always like ten to fifteen next steps that you could take. Most of which will waste your time and it won't be a good use of, of energy and resources, right? Um, and I, I think like hustle culture, which I'm like not a huge fan of, is largely focused on trying to, you know, hit every single one of those like 10 to 50 next steps, right? It's like, like we're not going to like be choosy. We're just going to do everything. What YC is exceptionally good at is at telling you like what makes sense to pursue and what doesn't make sense to pursue. Um, one great example is, you know, at the beginning of YC, we were very, very focused on creators, on like independent creators and on like having as many independent creators use the platform. And, you know, we, we really initially wanted to be like a creator tool. And what we started realizing um, and, and YC helped us like within like two to three weeks to realize that like that was not the move, you know, <laughs> like like creators were, were going to be like a huge waste of time. And, and like that, that, and also like potentially like not lead to a lot of revenue that, that, that our focus should really be within like, you know, enterprise. And the thing is, is like, that's a decision that I think with, without YC's help and without like the questions that they ask would have taken us, you know, weeks, if not months to figure out. Right. I'm just, I'm curious if it's, if it's replicable, like if, if with the magnifying glass, you could, you could take that type of the philosophy shared there and, and put it somewhere else in a different city, in a different state location with different people and make it work for example i think one of my questions coming into this to you you know going to babson which is already a school focused on entrepreneurship and bringing in people who are already entrepreneurs um you know what can universities do to help support undergraduate entrepreneurs those that may have lower risk tolerances um because they're just unsure about what their future may hold and and they keep hearing you should go be an accountant and a, a banker, a consultant, the school is even telling them to do that. You know, how can universities maybe take that, take on that YC mindset themselves to help undergraduate students? And I guess second to that is how can other students help support each other with the kind of like that YC mindset to help, you know, maybe they're not working on the project, but their friend is, you know, how, how can we help support each other? How can universities support other students? Yeah, sure thing. So, so, so what, one of the, the, yeah, what, what, what one of the kind of problematic aspects of university accelerators is that they are often like like I'll put it this way. YC one of the reasons why YC is like so effective is because you don't like if a YC partner gives you advice, um, you will take that advice, right? And, and and if YC tells you that you need to hit this metric within the next like two weeks, you will do whatever it takes to hit that metric within the next two weeks, right? Because because the level of trust in them is so high. And also because, you know, you know that like, oh, like, well, you know, I, I, I have this opportunity and some other people don't, right? So, so I'm going to make sure that I actually take this advice and listen to it. Um, I think the big issue with a lot of university accelerators is that they're so focused on ensuring that every single person has like an accelerator experience that they're not willing to actually provide meaningful, constructive feedback to the students that they serve. Yeah, honestly, I was going to say like, to have your peers be critical of your ideas, but also be constructively critical is really important. I feel like a lot of universities, like not specifically talking about WashU, but they have ulterior motives for their business school students because um, like a lot of like rankings for college universities are based on how much their students make after graduation. So of course they're gonna push their students into banking, consulting and tech. 
Um, whereas like, you, you know, entrepreneurship is a hit or miss. Like you could end up making nothing. You could end up losing a lot of money. So that's possibly another reason why universities don't want to dedicate so much time to that, which is unfortunate. But I wonder if there's ever a solution to something like that. Probably not. Just because it's the ranking system. It's, it's how they get their name out there. And right. It's, it's just weird. You know, I don't see any statistics. And I was looking at this before this interview because I knew this was going to come up. But, like, there are no statistics on, like, U.S. News and World Report about money given to undergrads. Like, that's not part of their ranking system. It's not a piece of the pie that puts one school ahead above the next. When it should be, when these schools have billion-dollar endowments or more, it's like, why not take a risk on some student that may or may not have a good idea that may or may not go anywhere? I, I feel like the university piece may be exhausted. I want to talk, Michael, about like primary education. Like let's let's take ourselves back to this Kanye West ticket era that I have sitting next to me from 2016 and put ourselves in our high school boots and maybe even middle school boots, you know. Era seems like something that can, yes, be used for corporations, but also for students, like you were saying, in Yemen, across the country, pre-college. Um, and along that same vein, entrepreneurship, I think, is something that is still missing from a lot of educational systems within the United States, but also across the world for primary education. I don't know if you've given any thought as to like how to use Eris maybe as a tool to bolster entrepreneurship inside and outside of the United States you know, before someone actually gets to college. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so, so I think the, for me, the defining aspect of my middle and high school education that I think helped a lot from like an entrepreneurial perspective was the fact that like the, the, the middle school and high school that I went to were both very, very permissive, right? So one great example of that is, is that my senior year, me and a bunch of my peers ended up uh, leading like the largest uh, student walkout in Oregon history. And, and like instead of pushing back, Right, the administration was incredibly supportive, and the teachers actually ended up walking out with us. Right, which, which, like, and again, like, I grew up in Portland in like a super, like, you know, it was like a, a very unique environment. But, but, but I think like that was one of the things that that was awesome. Right, is is that like our teachers would give us the space and the time to pursue our ideas and to experiment. Right, because the, because the reality is is like entrepreneurship requires a lot of failure. Right, and like and like. Most successful entrepreneurs that I've spoken to say that like everything feels like a failure up until the very end, and even then it still feels like a failure, right? Even when you sell your company, or like if it, even even like when like something great happens, you still feel like it like it, you know it failed or maybe wasn't enough or maybe you should have done these things differently. And um, and the thing is, is is I think like our school systems by and large like really just don't give us a lot of room to fail. They're, they're very structured, very focused on like you know like just doing the next thing. And, and like one, one anecdote that, that sticks out to me is I, I had a really, really great math teacher, uh, Chadwick Hamilton, uh, like one of the, the greatest teachers I ever had. He taught a class called Math Connections, which really had nothing to do with math. It was just like a, like a free period where you would get the resources, the resources to do whatever you'd like. All you had to do was explain like what you were doing and what you were learning. And that, that was it. And so one of my classmates, a uh, kid named James, who like really at that point, like had like he had like a 2.0 GPA, like couldn't really care less about school um, and was generally pretty detached from like everything. Um, he spent the whole class uh, teaching himself how to hand carve a snowboard and hand carve this beautiful snowboard uh, like th over the course of like two or three months. Right. And I, I think he now like snowboards professionally, but, uh, but, 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 but like it was just like the coolest thing, right? Because any other school environment, 
would never have given the opportunity for a kid to like spend like two or three months learning how to hand carve snowboards and, and do that. Um, and and I, I think that that's like kind of critical. You know, I, I think I think educational systems just need to be like a lot more permissive, a lot more flexible, and then actually give students the time to like live and, and be themselves. You know. You know, you brought up the attitude of entrepreneurs and I'm, I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe, maybe that is that entrepreneurial attitude where nothing is ever good enough. Even when you get to the end and you quote unquote, you know, reach your goal or whatever, it's, it's never good enough. You know, is that, is that just the, the entrepreneurial attitude at play? The attitude that we attribute to some of the most successful and I guess maybe even the unsuccessful people, um, that we know and are kind of, daily vocabulary like the zuckerbergs and and the the bill gates and whatever is that they're just always striving for more and more and never, nothing is ever good enough or you know does that ever get to be toxic um based on what you've seen at like y combinator with other companies you worked with like like how do you what do you think about that that attitude towards towards work towards life yeah definitely i, th- I think it can yeah it can get very toxic and i think it's something that needs to be kept in check like i i think for, from my experience, entrepreneurship usually happens for two reasons, right? What one is, you know, with some like Emily Weiss is a great example, and she's an entrepreneur that, that I like look up to, to immensely. Um, she, she's the founder of Gloucester, and um, you know, in her case, it, it was it was the drive to create, right, and the drive to build community. Um, and, and, and so I think that's like you know that, and, and with Emily specifically, it was the drive to create a you know a community around like a void that that she felt and saw. And I think in that case, like, you know, most entrepreneurs like that, you know, the, the, the reason they're willing to go so far to, to create these things. So, I mean, I mean Patrick Collison has a really, and sorry for jumping around here, but like, I'm, yeah, there's like a lot of different data points here. But Patrick Collison, uh, the founder of Stripe, also has a really great quote that like entrepreneurship is in many ways like kind of delusional, right? Because you have to believe that like your idea, right? Like in your idea for how like this thing should work is so important, right, that, that you're going to spend, like, a ridiculous amount of time trying to bring that idea into existence without any actual data that anybody wants what you're trying to create or, or that, like, what you're trying to create is actually beneficial in any way, right? I mean, I mean, entrepreneurs, like, generally operate on a very, very limited amount of data. And, and so, like, I mean, even, even with Emily Weiss, right, I mean, she, she, uh, she, she started her blog while she was working at Vogue and uh, ran her blog until it had 10 million followers and she was still working at Vogue. And, um, and, and, and then the, like the brilliance of what she did is, is she realized that it made sense at that point in time with very, very limited data about the purchasing habits of the people that, that, that were reading her blog, that it made sense to quit her job and create a, and, and create a, a consumer products brand, right? Which is like a complete pivot from running a blog. Um, but, but, but again, like, you know, it requires a certain level of, of delusionality. Um, and, and I think that that can get really toxic and really problematic, right? And, and I think, you know, ensuring that, that back to your question about like, what can universities and what can students do to, to support each other? Uh, like, like providing a lot of mental health resources and a lot of support to, to people who like, like, you know, to, to each other um, is, is kind of critical. You know, it's funny, the, the word delusional, it's both wonderful it's like it has it has two sides. It's a coin, right? Because it can be both wonderful and and you can just have the most awesome things come out of that like delusionality, if that's even a word. And then at the flip side is is of course the the, the downside, the fact that 
it's like hope. I, I put it like hope. Like you're hopeful that your company will be the best. You're hopeful of a better tomorrow. But at the same time, isn't hope just a delusion anyways? Because like it'll just play out the way it plays out. And it's just like all a mindset. What I really like that you just described though is, is the upside of it. That you have like this ultimate belief that you will make it. And I think that there are specific industries in the world we live in today that need more of that, more, more people with delusion, like more people who, who have higher hopes than maybe are even like offered to them or opportunities that just simply aren't there. And I think one of those is education, which is why like I was so excited to talk to you today. I, out of curiosity, have you ever given thought to like, the next steps for Arist or for even yourself, if there's like another company that you're thinking of building or, or another step to, to further and further assist people in, in their journeys to educate themselves all across the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I think, um, I mean, broadly speaking, there's plenty of problems that need to be solved. Right. So, so like, you know, I think, I think within education, there are plenty with Aris, we're very narrowly ta- tackling like the accessibility problem in education. Uh, right, but, but but there's like you know I, I think I think most people agree that education is far from perfect, um, and it's going to require you know thousands and thousands of, of entrepreneurs and, and and you know nonprofit founders and and, um, and and you know and politicians and teachers to, to like fix that problem. But but yeah, I, I think broadly speaking, like the the, the reality is just like the, the more you learn, the more you realize how many things are broken, and, and, and I think that that's fundamentally also you know tying back to the, to the question of like how can colleges foster more college entrepreneurship is. Really, you know, a, a lot of college entrepreneurs, you know, because we are young and often, you know, have limited experiences, a lot of us are sort of blind to like the problems that genuinely exist in the world. And, and, and I think, um, yeah, for, for, for me, I, you know, I, I see Eris solving a specific host of problems and, and I'm re- really, really excited about the problems that we're going to be able to solve over the, over the course of the next five to 10 years. But beyond that, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be done. Um, one of the things in particular that I'm really passionate about is architecture. Um, you, you know, I think housing and the way that we build and design homes is, is certainly presents sort of a whole another problem in and of itself. There's a lot to be done. I think this was a Thomas Edison quote, but he basically said, for every problem solved, two more problems arise. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, even even when you're grinding and, and you're building to the next solution and you get there, there's something else that comes up. And so... I think I think the work that you're doing is great. I hope you continue to build and create. I'm really excited to see what you come up with. And I guess with that, you know, we'll, we'll lead to our, our we'll wrap things up. Is there anything that Michael you want to highlight about what's going on in in your life or with your work now that you're done with Y Combinator? Like like what's coming up? Anything that you want to share with share with the world? Being our our listeners, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I, I, I mean, I mean, um, I I would just re- reiterate that that you know now now the world is is sort of especially broken, right? I, I mean, like both globally in the United States and on, and on a very local level, there's a lot of things that desperately need to be fixed, right? Everything from from like you know the, the way that we poll people, right? I mean, it's it's crazy. Like if if you do a deep dive on on polling systems in the United States and um, and, you know, how we gather that type of data, it's like crazy, right? The, the, I mean, it's insane that like we still don't have the technology to accurately predict elections or actually gauge like sentiment, right? From, from polling to, to food insecurity, which is, a, you know, a huge issue in the United States, um, you know, that, that, that can can be solved. I, I, I think it's just like we, we need more people, you know, genuinely solving problems and, and, so, and, and, and focusing really on, on like the solution instead of creating something that sounds cool.
and, and I think that that's that's sort of the, the thing that I would you know reiterate. And, and the, the really beautiful thing is that whether it's at, at you know at the university level or, or on an individual level or you know, on, an, on an institutional level, like with organizations like YC, if you care deeply about genuinely solving problems, people will be there to help. Um, and, and it's it's you know really, really what I, what I've been blown away by is is the generosity of people. You know, at, you know, at all levels, um, in terms of helping bring bring you know solutions to life. So that, that that's what I would sort of yeah take away with. Thank you so much, Michael, for being on the show. It was it was incredible having you. So nice to meet you and chat with you today. Uh, thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. In the links in the anchor.fm description, there'll be there'll be some links there to learn more about Michael and his work. Uh, but for now, this has been Garrett and Emily on today's. Up and Coming, presented by Bear Studios. Until next time. This episode of Today's Up and Coming was edited by myself, Garrett, and featured music produced by Cole McCooch.